Changes to the Divorce Act, Part 1, Objectives and New Duties. I want to welcome our listeners and our viewer online on our YouTube channel. I'm Russell Alexander. I've been practicing law with our team at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers for over 20 years now. We help clients who are going through divorce and separation and other family law related matters. Today, we're going to talk about the Divorce Act. Uh, we don't ordinarily take a deep dive into legislation. Uh, some very important changes have been made. So this is something new for us. Um, the, uh, hopefully this is gonna help our clients, parents, lawyers, uh, dispute resolution practitioners and other players in the family justice system help understand uh, the changes to the Divorce Act. Because there's so many, we've broken this podcast series into six sections. Uh, today, we're doing objectives and new duties. We're going to have one on best interests, family violence, parenting and contact orders, mobility and jur jurisdiction. My dog likes that one. <laughs> Support and other considerations. So we've got a lot to cover off in this series. Before I introduce our guests, I just want to mention that this is federal legislation. So that what that means is it applies across Canada. Some provinces have legislation dealing with family law matters, which uh, may affect uh, certain rights and obligations. So you want to be mindful of your provincial legislation. This leg the Divorce Act will affect matters in the Superior Court for couples getting a divorce. We're fortunate that we have a unified family court system in Ontario, uh, but we also have superior courts and provincial courts. So if you're dealing with a parenting issue in a provincial court, this legislation may not apply to your particular family if you're not getting a divorce. So without further ado, let's uh, introduce our guest. Rick, you wanna tell us about yourself? Hi, Russ, thanks for, for having me. Uh, my name is Rick Patika. I'm uh... I practice in the areas of family law, matrimonial law, and I've been practicing over uh, 14 years, and I'm an associate with uh, Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. Great stuff. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, our webinar superstar, uh, celebrity, Michelle Malchin is with us. Can you introduce yourself, Michelle, or do you require no introductions anymore? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening and tuning in. Um, we promise not to make it too boring. I actually feel a little bit young in this crowd. I have over 10 years of experience, but I uh, actually got a LinkedIn notification, Russ, that you are celebrating 23 years with Russell Alexander uh, this year. I wonder if that comes with like a handicapped parking pass or something. Uh, I don't feel that old, but maybe I am. We may have to give you an extra elevator pass for uh, getting up to the second floor there. <laughs> The uh, Grecian formula, time to wash some of this <laughs> I've been with the firm for over four years now, and I practice in family law. Um, my specialty or, or my preference is to work with um, the best interests of the children and children's issues. That's really close and near to my heart, probably because I have four children of my own. So that's me in a nutshell. Well, it's great to have you back on. Um, we're gonna append a lot of information to our show notes. So if you're looking for the specific sections that we're gonna talk about, uh, they'll be there. You'll probably see some screenshots if you're watching online with respect to 
some of the areas that we're going to cover off. The Department of Justice for the Government of Canada has a great website. We'll include a link to that. A lot of the information we're discussing today is literally cut and pasted from that site. Um, so although it sound, I mean, we may sound intelligent, we're just simply following the legislation and some of the changes. So let's make a start. Um, Rick, you're going to talk about the duties with respect to the Divorce Act. What do you got for us? All right. Thanks, Russ. So what, as, you, as you mentioned, the, the, this year, um, the Divorce Act has been undergo many, many changes, and those changes are probably coming up in the next couple of weeks. They're actually going to be implementing them. And, and one, one of the major changes is that they included a new section in the Divorce Act, which refers to as duties of the court. And, and these are found in sections 7.8 sub 1 to 7.8 sub 3. There's only three subsections. And, and really the, the, the purpose of it, and the purpose is listed under 7.8 subsection 1, is, is really a, an aim to improve the coordination and communication of amongst various legal proceedings. Oftentimes in family and matrimonial matters, um, it's, it's very common that there's an intersection or interplay between different ty types or, of the justice system, typically uh, criminal justice system, if there's family violence, and even child protection uh, court will even get involved. And, and often that interplay is, is key because if, if if the court dealing with the divorce is unaware of certain orders that have been made either in the criminal court or the child protection court, uh, then it's going to affect it's going to affect the overall outcome. So um, the section really calls for transparency, and and it's a good thing. So with respect to this specific section, what do you think, Michelle? I really like it. It's something that we as family lawyers should know anyway. But it's really great to have it, you know, set out in the Divorce Act, really stipulated um, so that we can, as counsel, work together and um, try to understand that there are absolutely different types of law at interplay sometimes in many of our cases. I have many right now where there's bankruptcy issues, there's um, criminal issues, you know, there's a lot at play here. Yeah, and for... Um... You know, it makes sense for the judge. judges to want to make orders that are inconsistent with each other. Uh, so this section makes a lot of sense. And people who go to court just think the judge is going to deal with everything. But if you go to a superior court, family court may be in one room down the hall. There could be um, a criminal court proceeding that might be a superior court proceeding or a provincial court proceeding, depending on what the charge is. So there's lots of courts that don't interact well. And I think this uh, section tries to address that issue. Great. That's great stuff, Rick. What's the next section we're going to talk about? So the next section is basically under the same section of 7.8, except we'll deal with subsection two. And basically what that basically says is that in a, in a, in a divorce proceeding where there's corollary ruling, for example, if there's a custody and access being claimed, uh, and if there's... Um, the, any party relation to that proceeding, the court has a duty, it's a statutory duty now, uh, to take into consideration any other orders, uh, unless it's clearly not appropriate to do so, uh, made in other uh, justice uh, system courts. So for example, if there's a child protection order, uh, the court would want to know about that. If there's a criminal uh, court restraining order in place, the court also will want to know about that. 
And alternatively, if there's a civil protection order, or commonly these are restraining orders made within the family law court, the court would also want to know about that as well. So um, this section basically says that the court has a duty now to, to uh, consider what's, what those other orders say. And, and I, I, just want, I just wanted to kind of clarify, it's a new duty in the sense that this amendment is new on, on, on the books. Um, but at, at some level before these amendments, the courts have always, where the, it was brought to their attention, uh, if there was a child protection matter or a criminal court order in place, the family courts were still taking those into consideration prior to these amendments. So, so it's new in the sense that it's actually on the books, but, but practically speaking, they, uh, they were actually doing that all along from a practical uh, perspective. And also the section speaks to a potential search or a database uh, to, be, to be still implemented and carried out uh, under provincial law. Uh, which which allows for some sort of a, a database, which allows allows that information to be brought to the the court's attention if there's other orders made in different proceedings. Yeah, when I saw this uh, section, I'm wondering it might not just be limited to orders. I'm wondering what it says, you know, other information readily available. So I'm just not too sure how big the scope's going to be. Can it get, for example? a crown synopsis of charges um, that are outstanding against the party, even though they're not proven. And then what weight do we put on that? So it's kind of an interesting section in terms of the scope, uh, but certainly uh, in the family setting, the court's gonna want as much information as it can get, especially when they're dealing with the best interests of the child. What do you think of this section, Michelle? I agree. In so many cases, we have the criminal court and the family court um, that are working in tandem. But the problem is, you know, clients may find this surprising, but there isn't actually a way to really have those orders and that information, that disclosure shared between the two courts. So it's very important. I can't tell you the number of times we've had criminal matters where it says the parties are not to have contact with one another but there are young children and we need to be able to have these discussions and have discussions about, you know, um, who's going to take Tommy to school and should he be going to this extracurricular activity or this trip and who's going to pay for it. Um, and it's incredibly expensive if counsel now have to be the intermediary to have these ongoing family discussions. So I think it's important that both, um, all, all really courts speak to one another and um, work in tandem so that there are orders that protect all parties, but also orders that make sense and don't throw up unnecessary roadblocks for the right. party. Yeah, and, and we're working in a paper-based court system. Uh, so it's hard to search paper files easily. I know that we're moving to case lines, the court's updating, uh, moving towards digital. So hopefully that'll be easier in the future, but uh, this is certainly an important section. All right, Rick, you got one more for us? Yes, the last uh, subsection uh, three of section uh, 7.8. And, and basically that basically sets out what a, um, uh, what a definition of a civil protection order is. And, and that could be any civil order made to protect the person's safety, including an order that prohibits a person from A, being in physical proximity to a specified person or following a specified person from place to place, 
Uh, and I guess that's typically if there's some sort of stocking in place or um, another uh, example is contacting, communicating with a person, either directly or indirectly, uh, attending at or being at a certain distance of a specified place or location, engaging in harassing or threatening conduct directed at, at, at a person, occupying a family home or residence, or engaging in family violence. And, and um, one of the key things that struck me about the definition of a civil protection order is, is really now, uh, if there's a, an order for exclusive possession, uh, a court is also gonna take that into account. Uh, that's the reasons why the exclusive possession order uh, was made uh, with respect to a matrimonial home or a family residence. And so I think that that's that's an important key thing uh, in the definition of a civil protection order. It goes well beyond the scope of a restraining order, and it also includes uh, an exclusive possession order. It includes an, a, a non-exhaustive list of expanded behaviors that the court should consider, because uh, domestic violence is really such a an important and troubling problem that we're facing uh, in family law proceedings. Michelle, what do you think? I absolutely agree. And I think it is open ended for a reason so that, you know, as we continue to develop, as we continue to get new legislation, new case law that we can um, adapt that section to fit new circumstances. So I think it is an interesting one, Russ. I saw a Zoom family uh, court proceeding. It was um, from the US. It was an American proceeding. And they had a, it was a criminal proceeding. They had the complainant testifying and the defendant and the prosecutor noticed that the complainant was looking sideways and acting strangely. They had the police to attend at the home and knock on the door. The judge asked the defendant, where are you located? What's the address? Walk outside the house and show us the number on your house. Turned out the defendant was in the victim's home wow. during the trial. Uh, and the defendant was arrested during the proceeding in the victim's home. So it's really troubling. You know, I, I, we're seeing lots of cases of domestic violence fall through the cracks. So I think this is a, an important change that uh, is really going to help. What an interesting case. Thanks for letting us know about that one, Russ. I hadn't heard about it before. I just saw it today. It's quite troubling. I'll include a link in the uh, show notes for today. Okay, so let's move on. So duties of the legal advisor, 7.7 sub 1 of the Divorce Act, and I'm going to try to sound as informed and important as Rick. So this is obviously uh, as lawyers, and they've expanded the definition of who needs to do this, advise our clients of the availability of marriage counseling services, uh, talk to them about potentially reconciling, provide them with names of it, of people who can provide them with uh, that kind of counseling or service in their community. Our law firm has a book of referrals uh, by the phone so we can easily give clients contact information. So I think uh, this sort of replaces section nine of the Divorce Act in terms of our responsibility. It's expanded, they changed the language from barrister and solicitor lawyer or advocate with legal advisor. Uh, that's interesting. I, I think they're opening the door potentially to 
non-lawyers um, participating in family court sits, uh, proceedings or advice at some point in the future. I'm thinking maybe a paralegal. Uh, so a legal advisor has been watered down to include um, other people who don't have a law degree. So I think that's part of the change. Uh, they also changed the language to make it more inclusive. They refer to they as opposed to him or her. Uh, and that's done throughout the act. So I think this is sort of a bit of a house cleaning um, exercise, updating it, changing the language, making it more inclusive, uh, but reminding us that uh, this is an important part of the job legal advisors and professionals perform. Michelle, what do you think of this section? I agree with it. Um, as you know, as we know, the scope of legal services may or may not be um, increasing to include paralegals and it doesn't make sense to make a change today that we're going to now have to change in a couple of years and regardless it's just a reminder to everyone that we have this duty to provide not only legal advice but also advice on with respect to other services that are open to, to parties and it's a very important duty that we hold dear and that at our firm we really take to heart. Rick? Any thoughts on this section? I do. I, I agree. Uh, basically, uh, the duty to advise if there's a possibility and if it's appropriate to do so, reconciliation uh, is something that, that lawyers need to be aware of. And, and it's an ethical duty. We, we can't just assume that someone walks into the office and, you know, they, they're contemplating a separation and it may or may not be something that they're actually uh, wanting to do. And, and oftentimes it may be advisable to say, look, you may want to speak to a marriage counselor to see if, if there's a chance to make it work before you decide to proceed with the separation, so. Right, I agree. You know, we're not here to stir the pot or encourage people to separate. We're obviously going to help them if that's their choice. Uh, but we want to provide them with a, a balanced approach and let them know there's other options open out there. Great tip, Rick. Next section, um, duty to discuss and inform. So we're gonna, and I should note that all these sections take effect March 1, 2021. So these are now hit the ground. It's the law of the land. You, you're gonna need to know the provisions of the Divorce Act if you're gonna get divorced or if you're gonna help people get divorced. So uh, it's important that you take a look at all the changes. Um, so duty to discuss and inform. So. This is, uh, I think this was in the old Divorce Act, but not as clearly or as, uh, the, the demarcation wasn't quite as bright. So we have a duty to advise clients of alternative dispute resolution before commencing a, a court proceeding or a divorce. Uh, so that could be something such as ADR, mediation, arbitration, our lawyers have collaborative practice training where we commit not to go to court. We focus on goals and interests rather than doing a rights-based analysis. If you want to learn more about collaborative practice, uh, look for our podcast and YouTube videos. We've covered it several times. It's a fantastic way to stay out of the court system. But um, the statute does say um, we got to be mindful of circumstances where it would be clearly inappropriate um, to look at uh, resolution outside of a court system. 
So I think what they're anticipating is uh, extreme cases of power imbalance where the negotiations won't be fair. I'm involved in a case right now where uh, the economic power imbalance between the husband and wife is huge uh, and it really tips the scales. Um, so uh, you gotta be mindful of that. Certainly um, domestic violence uh, might not be appropriate. Uh, there could be criminal bail conditions preventing people from being in the same room or close to each other. You might be able to do it creatively through shuttle mediation or shuttle negotiation, but um, you, you wanna be mindful like the other section of other proceedings and court orders. If you're representing uh, a the defendant, you, know, you don't want your client to potentially breach his or her release conditions and end up in jail until their trial. So lots to consider here. Um, again, they changed the language. Again, they've watered it down from barrister and solicitor or lawyer or advocate to legal advisor. I guess that is a look towards the future in case other people are gonna be advising, other people without law degrees. Um, so I'm thinking maybe paralegals or other trained professionals. Um, so I think this is uh, an important section it involves some judgment, but certainly I think you should always advise clients of ways to settle outside of the court system. With the pandemic, um, one of the case, one of our judges spoke to our local annual general meeting for our bar association. He was not optimistic things are going to be back to normal for a year or more because they're implementing case lines and other systems and and they're playing a bit of catch up. So if you go to court and you have a trial, you're looking at 2022, 2023. I've heard of judges saying you might need to wait to 2024. So it's three years out before you get a trial date. Uh, most of, if not all of your case can be resolved outside of the court system. The divorce order will still need to be signed by the judge, but that's a really a procedural matter if the rest of your case is settled. So I think this is an important section. Um, Michelle, do you wanna give us your thoughts? Absolutely, and I think one of the things we're gonna see throughout this presentation is the same concept or idea repeating itself again and again and again. And they're really driving home that if you don't get caught by this one section, we're gonna put it throughout all the sections to make sure that you understand you have these duties, you must follow these duties. And it's really for the best interests of the parties, the children that we have these. Um, scattered throughout there because we want parties to know that there are alternative solutions and that there are um, other ways other than litigation. Right. Rick? I agree. I, I think the, the duty is, is there and, and, and spread out throughout the, the changes, the new changes to the act, as Michelle mentioned. And, and really these other alternative dispute resolution process oftentimes it may be more appropriate than the actual court system contrary to what a lot of people believe in. Russ, I remember that case that uh, we did on that um, with Justice Pazaratz uh, with that uh, Newfoundland case about the, the child and and Justice Pazaratz said of that- people uh, terrified of COVID, that's right. And he said, you know, the, the, he's terrified of going to COVID and instead of going to therapy or seeking a, a mental health professional, they're coming to a judge to deal with the problem. And, and I think that really strikes uh, true, especially when reading this provision like this, is that you need to go to the right people to deal with the right problem. So 
Yeah, the judge said you got the wrong professional. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to do uh, cover some of his other decisions. He's uh, pretty witty. So the um, next section we're going to take a look at is 7.7 .7 sub 3 certification. Just to back up on that last section, and some of the some of the other sections we talked about. I'm anticipating if you go to court, the first question you're going to get is what steps did you take to try to resolve this before commencing a court application? You should include that as part of your pleadings, but if you tell the judge I didn't take any, then you're in violation of the statute. You're likely going to get kicked out or they're going to send you off to mediation or some type of alternative dispute resolution and won't hear your case. Um, so this is going to have real consequence if you don't follow these provisions. So next certification, uh, we're taking a look at 7.7 .7 sub 3. Uh, when you're formally commencing a proceeding, such as an application, you're, the legal advisor or lawyer will need to certify uh, that these requirements have been met. Uh, and it's an expanded certification process. Um, section 9 of the Divorce Act was uh, required certification in the old rules, uh, but there's several certifications and it's expanded definition. We actually commenced the proceeding recently and my clerk and I went through the certification process to make sure we've checked off all the boxes. Um, so again, another uh, layer that's being added to ensure we are steering cases outside of the court system. Uh, Rick, what do you think of uh, certification? I, I, I agree with it in that it, it, it confirms the legal advisor or the lawyer's uh, duty uh, to certify that he or she has done what they're required to do under the act. You know, when, when I read this and it started making me think about the potential practical effect is that will this lead to cost consequences potentially? Or how does it how does it position the lawyer and the client? So, if a lawyer says to his or her client and they say, we "Recommend that we try a parenting uh, professional to deal with the parenting plan," and they're insistent that they want to go to court, and the judge, as you were saying, Russ, is that the judge will canvas saying, "What have you taken?" What does that mean for the lawyer? And say, "Yeah, I've certified it to my client, but he or she." Uh, wanted to proceed with this court proceeding. And if it turns out that that issue could have been more easily resolved, does that potentially open up the door to cause? Yeah, it's certainly not going to put your client in a good light. It's not a good way to start your case off. Uh, if you make the certification and it's false, then there, there could be, uh, you know, discipline consequences for the legal advisor. Uh, so certainly I, what I would sure, surely do is, you know, paper your file, report to the client, set out in detail the options and um, even the names of uh, mediators or counselors that you referred them to. Um, but you're right, Rick, if, if you've got a client who perhaps is going to court for an improper purpose, right? Maybe they want to exact some retribution for what they perceived were wrongs during the course of the relationship and they think the court's going to be able to do that they're going to be um, shocked to find that uh, the court's not going to have any patience for that kind of conduct great point though michelle what's your take 
I agree. I think it also encourages lawyers to actually look into other processes. So for instance, you mentioned that all three of us are collaboratively trained. Um, some of our viewers may not understand or know that that's actually another set of training that we've done. It's another expense, another um, number of years in my case. I know they've fast-tracked it now, so you can do both levels at once. Um, but, but because it is additional training, additional steps, and additional cost, many lawyers don't have additional training and collaborative training. So hopefully this helps to incentivize and motivate lawyers to do this extra training, get these extra abilities and skills under their belt, because it really does make you a better litigator, as well as a better lawyer in the sense of helping you to resolve issues that can be resolved. Nothing looks worse than going to court and having a judge say, well, why didn't you do A, B, or C, which is a very simple collaborative um, step that you would take. And a lawyer saying, I didn't, or our client just wanted to, to go to court and hear a judge tell them what they think. The legal advisor would need to question whether that client's right for them as well. Uh, in terms of trying, how are you gonna be able to manage their expectations or um, you know, it's easy for us looking back with the training as part of our DNA. Uh, we're focused on resolution all the time. And, and we've made this uh, paradigm shift that they talk about in the training. But the training, I think, also makes us better advocates. Um, we're focusing on clients' interests, clients' goals, not simply what the legislation dictates. Or, uh, so I, I agree, Michelle. I, hopefully this will encourage lawyers uh, without training um, to look into it and become trained to keep matters out of the court system. Okay, I think you have our next section, Michelle. Excellent. So as I discussed, these are the issues that are near and dear to my heart, which is the best interest of the child. So the new section 7.1 of the Divorce Act says that the person who has decision-making or parenting responsibility has a duty to make decisions that are consistent with the best interests of the child. And this is a terminology that you'll hear throughout family law. Usually it is applied to the decision-making process. So when a court has to make a decision about where the child lives, who gets to make decisions for the child, they use this test called the best interest of the child. What this section does is says that not only at the decision-making process should we be thinking about the best interest of the child, but every single parent who has, or, or sorry, not even parent, anyone who has, um, you know, decision-making responsibility in parenting yeah. time with the child has to keep in mind the um, best interests of the child. And what does that mean? So for instance, um, you know, so many times we get these cases where parents are arguing over school and one parent wants a child to be in one school and one parent wants a child to be in another school, usually due to vicinity and proximity of how close they are to um, each party's home. But at the best interest of the child test, you wouldn't look at what does the parent want or what does the parent think is the best for the kid. You would look at the child and you would say, okay, let's look at, for instance, the um, school rankings. Let's look at where their friends go. Let's look at what special programs these schools may have that um, would possibly have an impact over the choice. So it's not just which school is gonna be easier for me, the school that's three blocks away or the school that I have to drive 10 minutes to and takes me out of my regular routine. It really is looking at 
for the children, what makes the most sense for them. And this isn't just a duty when you're in um, a decision-making time period. So for instance, at a trial, this is throughout the court case. So if, for instance, we get to a trial and you have a parent who consistently, consistently does not make decisions that are in the best interest of the child, I think that that's going to be used against them now. And you can use the section to say that they haven't been making decisions that are in the best interest of the child. What did you think about this, Rick? I agree. I think I think what it basically it it almost kind of shifts some somewhat of a burden on the parent, and as you said, they have to show that the decisions or what they're proposing, what decisions to, to make, are actually in the best interest and as, as set out by the legislation. Um, so if their if their conduct or behavior isn't consistent with that it's going to look negatively on them. Um, and, and the way it was worded, I think it was worded intentionally. And though that's how I'm kind of reading it. It was almost to shift the burden on the parent to say, are you actually fulfilling your duties in the best interest of your children? It's, it's, and, and that's, that's the lens that it will be looked at. So how are you, Russ? Yeah. Um, I would know it says parenting time, decision-making responsibility or contact. So this is a wide net that they're casting with this change. With this change, I think it could apply to grandparents, extended family, people who are caregiving for the child. So, you know, I think it, it applies to everybody and it certainly uh, is a move in the right direction. Absolutely. How many times have we had, for instance, new partners? who may not be married into the family yet, but you know, boyfriends, girlfriends coming into the picture. And if they're not making decisions that are in the best interest of the child, that may reflect badly on the child's parents. So I, I think you're both right. I really like the large net that they've, they've cast here. And I think it will help us catch all of those instances that we couldn't before. Yeah. Excellent. Great stuff. Yeah, I think you have the next one too, Michelle. I do. Thank you. So the next section is section 7.7 .7, subsection two, which is the duty to discuss and inform. So again, uh, they talk about a legal advisor, not just a lawyer and anyone who undertakes to act on a person's behalf, um, encouraging parties and people to resolve issues in a family dispute resolution process. And I really know that I really like the family dispute resolution process language because it doesn't say there is a one size fit all. So it doesn't say that you must do mediation or mediation arbitration or collaborative or negotiation. It allows for the parties to choose what makes sense in their case, not only financially, but emotionally and with respect to other matters that may be going on. If, for instance, there are criminal issues and there may be a restraining order in place, maybe face-to-face um, you know, -face negotiation wouldn't work, but a shuttle mediation or you know, negotiation through counsel, something like that may, may be able to work. So I really like the wide scope there. Um, and I really like that they left it open for other processes that maybe we haven't thought of yet or may not have been enacted yet, that we can still forward looking, use other things. That may become, you know, at our disposal at a later date. So, what did you think, Russ? Yeah, and it also talks about um, family justice services. So, 
There's mm -hmm. lots of great resources uh, provincially and federally. Ontario government has a lot of information in terms of uh, how to resolve court cases outside of the court system and use some of these services. Um, so it could be something a mediator, counselor, uh, it could even be the lawyers with collaborative practice training. I think it's uh, certainly a move in the right direction. Rick? Uh, I agree. And, and uh, basically, um, this, is, this is just another example of how we see that same theme that Michelle was, had discussed before of the same duty to inform of other processes. This is, we were talking about it just in the last section that you covered for us, and here it is in the next section that look, to look at other family dispute resolution processes. Uh, I, I think history has shown that um, court is not always the best route to resolve problems. Uh, it's like trying to drive a nail into a wall with a screwdriver and it's not the wrong, it's not the right tool. Um, okay. Sometimes you need, you, need the, you need the right tool to do it. And I think this is the push for it. I think, you know, this, there's, there's a lot of years of, of, of witnessing that court was not the right solution and there was a better solution and this is pushes forward so yeah it's a breath of fresh air for sure if you're enjoying this podcast or this video and you find it helpful give us a thumbs up or uh, leave us a comment in the comment box below we're going to endeavor to answer everybody's questions and comments uh, i think you have one more uh, tidbit for us here michelle i do and just before we get off that topic you know, there's a well-known fact that less than 1% of cases that start in the family law system actually end with a trial. So right. we've already, as lawyers, been working to resolve these issues, you know, outside of a judge or um, a trial emotion telling us what to do. So it just says, instead of wasting all that time, money, energy, emotional, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, emotional time, why don't you start that at the outset? Why don't you start it with, let's resolve what we can and only what we can't, then we will take to the court process. And remember, if you go to court, you're asking a third party stranger, probably a judge, to make decisions about your family and your children. Uh, they're, never, they're not likely ever gonna meet your children uh, and impose an order on you that you may or may not like. It just makes no sense. Uh, the parents certainly know what's best for their children, unless it's one of those exceptional cases of violence or abuse, um, where I think it's essential for the court to step in to protect children. Um, this is certainly um, a better way. I agree with you, Michelle, 100%. Absolutely. So my last section is 7.7 .7, subsection three. And again, this deals with certification. So specifically when you're speaking about the best interests of the child, you also have to certify as a legal advisor that you have complied with the section, that you've explained the section to your clients. You know, no client goes out and reads the Divorce Act when they hire a lawyer. That is our responsibility and our duty to put it in simple language, explain the reasoning behind it, explain when we should be using it, when we shouldn't be using it, um, and, you know, explaining the different processes that are available. Clients don't come in knowing the difference between mediation or, or arbitration or um, collaborative or court. 
you really have, as a lawyer, you really have a um, ability to guide your client and give them good advice. And if you've done a good job, you will explain to them properly all of the different options that are available to them so they can make a really good choice. Yeah. What did you think about this, Russ? You're right. It's all about uh, informing the client and providing balance to your recommendations. Um, you don't want to do it in a um, summary or flippant way, uh, you know, like nudge and wink. Uh, we're really going to go to court, but I just got to give you this speech required by the Divorce Act. Uh, I think you really need to believe in these changes and that it's in the best interest of our clients and especially their families that they uh, give this a serious look. Rick? And that's an excellent point, Russ. And it's true. It's it's not just more than a nudge and a wing. Um, I think that puts the duty on the lawyer the, uh, to basically say to their spouse, look, if we can negotiate something, let's do it. And negotiate in good faith. There's a duty that the parties not just go through the motions of making it look like they're negotiating, but they're doing it in good faith. And if something can be resolved outside of court, if there's four issues and three of them can be resolved outside of court through other mechanisms, and court is the is the one that that is necessary for that last issue, and at least they can say to a judge, say, look, we there were four issues, we resolved three out of the four, and we need your help on this last issue potentially. So, um, it, it's a it, it's a good it's a good change. So, right. So we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg here. This is we're going to bring this train into the station and wrap today's podcast up. Uh, but objectives and new duties. Um, this is just one small part of many changes that we're going to be covering off in the next several weeks. Um, really want to thank Michelle and Rick for joining us today and giving us their time and thoughts on these important changes. Uh, let's get some final thoughts before we sign off. Can you uh, take the lead here, Rick? Final thoughts is these changes are, are all for the better. And, and as I said before, I think these changes come from uh, many bright minds and, 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 and you know, uh, people who have had input into the process and the amendments to say that, you know, um, more needs to be done. And, 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 and the thrust of the new duties focus around looking at other alternative uh, dispute resolutions to solve people's uh, difficulties going through a, a separation, which is a rough time already. Yeah, I agree. Michelle? Absolutely. I also would like to say, you know, these changes have been a long time coming. I, I've forgotten, but the last uh, time that the Divorce Act was changed was approximately 70 or 80 years ago. So it really has compiled a very large basis yeah. of knowledge. We've come so far in those years. We've learned a lot as family lawyers. We've learned to put the focus on the children, not on the parties. Um, and another thing we don't talk about enough is the cost of all of this. Court is incredibly expensive. And if you can resolve some issues outside of court and you can do it in a manner that you may not both be happy with, but you can both live with it, we always tell our clients, you know, that's the way to do it. Right. I would much rather that you spend $10,000 on your kid's RESP than you give it to me to simply have a judge make a decision. And for instance, I just had a court case where we did a long motion. Mom wanted A, dad wanted B. What did the court do? They did C. And both parties were upset by it. Both parties are coming back saying, wait a second, how can they do C when we wanted A and B? 
And the reality is judges can do what judges want to do. And it's a stark reminder that if you want to stay in control of your kids' lives and of your life, you know, sit down, try to resolve what you can and only go to court at the last instance. Right. Both clients are equally upset. I guess that's uh, the, uh, the justice system at its best, but maybe not. The, Michelle Melchin and I do a bi-weekly webinar on how to divorce during a pandemic. And we do have a slide that briefly touches upon changes to the Divorce Act. But it, and we say it could be a full day uh, webinar, those changes. So that's why we've broken it down. Um, my final thought on this, I think, you know, alternative dispute resolution, no matter what form it takes, is really the only game in town right now. Unless you've got an urgent matter or there's something that require, absolutely requires a judge to step in, uh, you're going to be waiting several months, likely years, to get your case resolved through the family court system. It's going to be expensive. The court's um, going through a lot of change right now. There's new rules in place. There's practice corrections. There's new forms you need to file. You need to comply with all these new provisions of the Divorce Act. So that's a lot to go through. If you can work it, like Michelle and Rick are indicating, you know, 75, 80% of your case outside of the court system, uh, I think that you're gonna find that when you do end up before a judge, he or she are gonna roll up their sleeves and do everything they can to help you because you've complied with the directions under the Divorce Act and really give you, um, you know, hopefully a good result if you do end up going to court. So once again, I wanna thank Michelle and Rick for their time today. This is uh, a really important topic affecting the entire legal profession and our families that are going through divorce. Please leave your thoughts and comments below. Again, if you like this video, give us a thumbs up and let us know. You can subscribe to our channel, hit the bell, con to, bell icon to get notification every time we have a new podcast or upload a new video. Thank you guys and thank you for listening and watching today. Thanks everyone. Thank you everyone. Thanks for us. Thanks, Michelle.